You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Happy New Year, SpyCast family. This is our 300th SpyCast. And we'd like to thank all of you for listening, whether you just discovered us or if you've been listening since we kicked this off all the way back in 2006. For some of you, this podcast today is your first taste of what we do here at SpyCast. For others, you've listened to all 300. And over the years, you've seen us get, well, let's say slightly more technologically proficient. You'd be amazed at how many random noises from ambulances to horns to road work to presidential motorcades have been cut out of podcasts over the years. We all look forward to this year, 2018, when at some point we will move over to our new digs and have a studio that doesn't abut the DC Autobahn. But until then, hopefully you can continue to enjoy our little guerrilla radio operation. I'd like to thank Peter Ernest, Thomas Bogart, and Mark Stout for blazing this trail and setting the standard we try to meet every week. I'd also like to thank all of those who have worked on SpyCast behind the scenes in particular, and they're going to be annoyed I'm calling them out, our AV wizards, Memphis Vaughn and Mike Mincy. Without them, the podcast would essentially just be police sirens coughing and me cursing a lot. So, okay, enough of that. Let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Carmen Medina, who spent 32 years at CIA, including service as the deputy director of intelligence and the director of the Center for the Study of Intelligence. She's also the author of Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. Welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. We always like to talk about people's kind of CIA origin story, like what brought them to the agency in the first place. And, and it's interesting to talk to people about kind of what brings them to a job like this. It's a right. unique career. It's a unique perspective and how that background influences who they became later on. So how did your early years make you who you are today and steps in between? How do you early get you to CIA? Wow. Wow. Um, so I'll go back to. Uh, I'm uh, Puerto Rican by birth. I like to say Puerto Rican by birth, Texan by nationality, because I spent a lot of time in Texas, went to high school. So I went to high school. My dad was a sergeant in the Army. So I traveled my whole youth. 
I never spent more than two years in a place. And uh, I first person in my family to go to college. No one had gone to college. So the whole idea of going to college was a mystery to me. Was a high school and college debater. <laughs> that played a huge role in my future career because I learned how to think critically, the use of evidence. And I still, to this day, recommend to people when they ask me about how do they get ready for mm -hmm. an intelligence career, I, I suggest one of the things is pursuing forensics because it really makes you think fast and on your feet. Well, I can imagine it also kind of puts you in a position to think of the other side of issues oh, as well. That, kind of like built-in innate red teaming from the uh, very beginning. It, it's exactly yeah. right because in, in the debate, at least the way it was conducted then, and I think it still follows the same general rule based on the flip of the coin. You can yep. debate either side of the proposition. And you really understood uh, how evidence can be twisted to support different perspectives. So I eventually, because of my debate background, I got to the East Coast. I got offered a full tuition debate scholarship at Catholic University here. And without that, I would never have made it to the East Coast. And at the time, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And I realized I got to, I, I say this and I, I apologize to all my lawyer friends. <laughs> I got to, the Catholic had a law school and I got to meet some of the people there at Catholic who were law school students, almost all guys back in the 1970s. And I was like, I don't want to become one of them. <laughs> so I quickly had to change focus and the only other thing I was really interested in was the world, which is, a, if you think about it, is a funny statement, right. right? But the world, you know, I think my background traveling. Like how you've been stationed overseas yes, with your in dad? Germany, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fact that I was Puerto Rican. I, I just was naturally interested in world culture. So I only applied to one school, Georgetown for their Master's of Science in Foreign Service program. I got accepted. And that fall comes the CIA recruiter to interview at Georgetown. It was for the summer internship program. Mm -hmm. So if you're in graduate school, uh, you can get a usually a 90-day summer job, but you have to be fully cleared and you're paid a very good salary for a summer mm -hmm. employment. And I got hired. And after... I don't know, 80 of the 90 days, the people there said, Carmen, we'd like you to stay on. And I was like, well, darn, this is why I'm going to school to get a job like this. Right. So I stayed on and I always meant and tried to complete my graduate degree, but it, it just, it didn't happen. It didn't, happen. Seem to it didn't happen <laughs> and eventually it never mattered. So were you uh, thinking state department? When I was first thinking went in? state yeah. department when I went to George to, uh, Georgetown. And in fact, I think after college, but before I started graduate school, I did take the foreign service test and I did not, I got close, but did not pass the written mm. and never took it again. Right. Never tried it again. When CIA is a fairly diverse institution today, it really tr does its best to reflect the diversity of the nation, but not so much when you started in the 1970s. No, I started in 1978. And the story I like to tell people, which isn't accurate, but <laughs> nevertheless is truthful, 
is that I would wander around the hallways at lunch looking for the other brown-skinned person <laughs> because I had been told such a person existed. So being a woman was unusual, although there were other women in uh, the office that I started in. I started actually in the off center, and that was a great education. And then after about 15 months of that, I went to work on Southern Africa as an analyst. There were women working on Southern Africa, but it was a very, I think how people think of the CIA, uh, you know, men in their 40s and 50s with short cut hair, right. wearing white shirts and sitting at their desks very studiously. Yeah. That was what the environment was like. Well, so you were essentially a double minority being a woman and a Hispanic and people, at the same time. Pe you know, someone actually said, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, that I was a triple minority because <laughs> I was Puerto Rican, a woman, and I had worked for a year as a rabbi secretary. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, whatever. But yes, I was definitely uh, a double. Was the culture of CIA ready for someone like you coming in? I, I, I saw you told a story about how uh, people tried to break the ice at lunch by mentioning their culinary tastes. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I, this was a story. Uh, I was taking a, I think, the first course I ever took on intelligence analysis because back then you started working as an analyst. There was no training. Now there is a, a several week, maybe even two or three months course for new analysts hired in the directorate of analysis, as it's called now. But then they just threw you in. And uh, about three or four years into my career, I go down to a secret facility that I will not discuss any further <laughs> that uh, uh, we, where we were taking the course. And this older gentleman sits down next to me and, and I can tell he's trying to be friendly and welcoming but the very first thing he says to me is I really like Mexican food and I was <laughs> I was like okay but I'm not Mexican and it's complicated because right. I went to high school in El Paso, Texas so I actually love Mexican mm. food too but it's not my culture right. um, yeah it was um, you know I, when you're young and I was 23 when I started you don't, at least I didn't really realize uh, what I was getting myself into. And I didn't really perceive myself as being that different. Mm -hmm. And only over time did I appreciate the gap that there was between how I saw the world, perhaps, and, and how the mainstream saw the world. That might, might make my next question obsolete, but we can tweak it to yeah. whatever we need to. Being a double slash triple minority, uh, was there temptation to conform, to kind of be included, or or did you embrace the diversity and realize that it was an advantage? You know, I don't remember consciously thinking about that until the mid-1980s, let's say 84, 85, 86. And if, if it's okay, I'll tell you this quick Absolutely. story because it really, I think, is the moment that it really penetrated my consciousness that there was an issue. Mm. I, by this time, I was working on South Africa. In the 1980s in South Africa, everything was coming to a head. There was a lot of unrest. P.W. Bota was a stubborn, recalcitrant leader. My, I actually was following black politics and wrote some of the first analysis for the CIA on the black political movements like the African National mm -hmm. Congress or the black labor unions. Uh, 
And I became convinced that the black opposition was going to be much more effective and that the transition to black majority rule was going to occur sooner rather than later. And this was, I think, a minority opinion. I, th- I, don't, I wasn't alone, but it was a minority opinion. And people strongly felt that the South African, the Afrikaners in particular, would never give up power. And the only way you could get black majority rule was through a horrible, violent conflagration. I believed otherwise. I also had a sense that the whites were beginning to sense that they needed to make a strategic step toward mm-hmm. change. And uh, it became a big issue. A colleague goes to South Africa, comes back and decides I'm decides that I'm more right than wrong. And he writes a memo that says, why why didn't he see the change coming the way I saw it? And he actually says, maybe it's because I'm not Puerto Rican. And I read that memo and I was like, huh. <laughs> For, it was like, well, golly, gee. And so I actually created a little placard for my desk, Puerto Rican analysis. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how kind of odd I thought right. it was. And um, so I didn't really realize that there was a need for me to conform, mm-hmm. if, if that makes any right. sense, until I think that moment. And then I started, then I, I, I really began to understand how I thought differently. Was there any pressure to have you work on Latin America when you got to CIA? I mean, I did eventually for, yeah. I had like a cup of coffee on <laughs> Central America. I think it was less than a year. Um, you have the language skills. I have, and I was fluent in Spanish. Um, But also, I will say, had a lot of German, particularly Mm -hmm. back then. And another piece of advice I give, particularly to people from a Hispanic background or from any other, like, bilingual background, Mm -hmm. but in the United States, it's mostly Hispanics, I suggest to them, don't just take Spanish and get your easy A. Learn the right. third language. Yeah. The fact that you're bilingual from birth, you're wired to learn that third language. Anyway, um, no, there was no significant pressure to uh, work on Latin America. It, it never really appealed to me. And that brief cup of coffee I had being a manager on Central America confirmed my total lack of interest in Latin America. I, I, it's, it's peculiar, yeah. I, I realize. Um, how much of your expertise was school taught and learned? How much was on-the-job training? I mean, I'm going to expand that question to today. Would you talk about the fact that there are all these now courses to become an analyst? Is it more important for students out there, either undergrads or grad students, just to be curious about the world, have a well-rounded education, or, you know, if you had an African studies degree, would it have made all that much of a difference to you understanding South Africa at that point? No, I don't think having an African studies degree would have made that much of a difference. Although in that second year, while I tried to complete my master's, I did take mm. African studies courses, uh, hoping to get greater depth. I think that You know, I mentioned earlier the debate issue, and I think that that training and experience I had on making effective arguments 
and making them quickly was the most important training that I had as an analyst. I had very good managers. You know, it's sometimes the luck of the draw when you start a new job. And I was extremely lucky. My first two managers were exemplary. And I learned a lot from them. I I learned lessons, like one lesson I remember that one of them said to me is, remember, Carmen, you never run out of bullets. I was like, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, when I was a young analyst on Laos or Vietnam or something like that, I was tracking the military supplies that the Laotian guerrillas had. And I had figured out, like, to the day, the day they would run out of bullets. And I was going to write analysis. And my manager said, John, you never run out of bullets. And what what they were saying, that that kind of linear analysis, very sequential, that doesn't take into account the fact that life happens and all sorts of other stuff occurs that um, almost always was wrong. So that's an example of a very Mm. important lesson. On the curiosity front, I have always read a lot, read broadly, now, even more because of social media and the internet, you, you can't, I mean, I can't keep up with everything that I, that I want to read. I, um, I think that that's something that not, at least when I was at the CIA, not enough analysts did. They would develop this deep expertise on one topic and, and that's all they read about was China mm. or Russia. And I remember when the Soviet Union collapsed and the then Soviet analysts now becoming Russia analysts were trying to figure out how democracy would proceed, would develop, evolve, if it did, mm-hmm. in the former Soviet Union. They, they were like, many of them were sort of un, uh, untethered. And so I would suggest things to them like, well, why don't you read about Latin American democracies? Right. They've made this huge transition from authoritarian to more democratic and see what the lessons are there. And they would kind of look at me funny, like, why are you recommending that? But I think, you know, you have to be curious and you have to be deeply, um, I think you have to be broad. Even if you want to be a deep expert, you have to have a broad approach to it. Something that a, a policymaker once said to us when he was critiquing our analysts. He said, you know the problem with your analysts? They don't read enough fiction. And his point was that they don't understand human nature. Right. They're too naive, too scholarly, too academic. And I thought that was a valid criticism. Well, I mean, I, I think, it, you know, you talk about the compartmentalization that was there, kind of everyone kind of tunnel vision on their own thing. Was This had to have been an incredibly... I would use the word fun because I'm a nerd. Fun time at CIA in the late 70s, early 80s. There's just so much change taking place. It's, you know, you have Soviet leaders after Soviet leaders which are all dying one after the other mm-hmm. and change constantly. Change the United States. You have Europe is in turmoil. Africa and Latin America are in turmoil. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this stuff is happening. This seems like a time when you could all work with each other to kind of try to understand this transformation that's taking place in the world. But that wasn't the case. Yeah. And throughout my career in the uh, intelligence agent, in the uh, directorate of intelligence now analysis, 
we would either feel the need to write what we would call an overarching piece about trends in the world. For example, the director's annual world, worldwide threat brief mm-hmm. kind of compelled you to come up with some 36,000 feet perspective. Right. Or a policymaker would ask us a question like, gee, there's a lot of turmoil right now. Is there, are, or like, are there common threads you could pull out? And we would pull out our hair trying to find someone, an analyst who could approach that piece. Yeah. Because we we generally did did not have that kind of perspective or people focused on it who could pull together the, the threads and tell a coherent story. So I often think, and I know you're a historian, I often think that the great intelligence analyst is writing history that will withstand the scrutiny of the passage of time, but writing it at the moment. That is what great intelligence analysis is, is when you read it, it's the explanatory power, the perspective, the attention to nuance and detail is so spot on that it could have been written by a historian 20 years later. I mean, that's really rare. Right. But that, you know, the... Two or three times I saw it in my career, I was like, wow, that was really good. Well, it seems like we don't have the luxury to do that anymore. I mean, if you talk about – you couldn't study Africa today without understanding Chinese economics mm. because China is now such a key part of Africa. Exactly. And, or, or rare earth minerals. Right. Right? Well, it just – it seems it was true then as well. I mean, are we just realizing it more today than we were then? I think – you know, I do think that the information – context that we live in, the information environment that we live in, has made us much more aware of all the interconnections. As also uh, the emergence of complexity science in the last 30 years uh, also has made us understand the uh, almost a mysterious way that systems work. You know, the the web of causality that we have to Untangle for us to understand what's really going on. So I, I, you know, I think back when I was working uh, as an analyst, which would have been the 1980s, we really did think that if you just read your inbox every day, you would know what's going on, which is just highly flawed. Yeah. Highly flawed. You tell me about the Rebel Alliance. <laughs> well, so let's, you know, so that's an interesting. Um, Time. Uh, so I spent about 10 years of my career happy, comfortable with what we were doing, not really questioning what was going on. And then around the time of the end of the Cold War, I began to, to it began to enter my mind that the CIA's business model was flawed. I didn't know the phrase business model, right. but I thought, you know, we we're not going to be able to retain our comparative advantage in terms of keeping policymakers informed. When I talk in public, I say there were two things that led me to think that, and they always guessed the Cold War, and and although I mentioned it, that's not really one of the things that I was thinking about. Uh, They'll mention the internet, and it's pre-internet, the 1980s. So the two things were the rise of cable news networks. When I was looking at the news on CNN and going, that is like a 70 to 80% overlap yeah. with what we're doing. And they're doing it all the time. And that the second was this classified 
fax machine that showed up in the building in the 1980s where we could put a top secret umbrella piece of paper and it would show up in the White House 10 seconds later. And I was like, whoa. So in a way, that was like the first example of digital technology that I ever confronted. And I just became persuaded that, whoa, our business model is endangered and we need to think about how we need to change. And other people in within the community were also beginning to have that awakening. Uh, people that I, I know have written on it, like Calvin Andrus, and, and uh, there, there were many people. We weren't a majority at all, but there, right. we were a handful. And we somehow we found each other and we got to talking about how the CIA needed to change. And during the 90s, we sort of thought of ourselves as a rebel alliance. <laughs> I mean, we were, you know, we were not, I was not Princess Leia by <laughs> any means, uh, but we were together, slightly connected, trying to figure out, push the agency in the direction where it started to pay attention to how the world was changing. I remember in the 1990s arguing that the internet was going to be for real and it was going to have a huge impact on any organization that did that information-based organization. And just having a really hard time making that argument. Did how did the leadership view this? Was it was it with mild amusement, or was there pushback? So, or did every, they so every once in a while, there was a leader who was receptive to what we were saying. Uh, there was a leader of the Directorate of Science and Technology. I remember, and I'm I'm blanking on her name. So, but she was. She kind of, well, you know, because she was involved in technology, she could kind of see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, I remember John McLaughlin as someone who was uh, receptive to it. Uh, So, for example, one of the, I I remember playing around with the idea that we should be in a publish one ready model. In other words, rather than hold all our information and publish once a day in the morning, I thought, no, we should just feed our content continuously. And I remember talking to John McLaughlin about that and and that he agreed. Uh, But generally, what I didn't realize, and, and, and part of my work now is to try to help people think about this, what I didn't realize at the time was that I was arguing for theological change at CIA. So the internet is about open information. The CIA is about closed information. So I was arguing that they should take seriously something that was totally heretical in terms of the CIA's operating theology. I'm ashamed to say that it never entered my mind that it would be that difficult for the leadership to understand the potential of the internet. Well, you've used, you've used words and stuff you've written or talked about creativity and crop collaboration. Right. What made that for anyone who came to CIA or is thinking about it in the last 20 years, that's not that heretical. Right. We've talked a little bit about kind of the compartmentalization of the agency before that. And I think collaboration, you mean maybe even broader than just CIA with other agencies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even with other countries potentially. Why is 
thinking creatively and collaborating with others such a key component to doing good analysis? Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, <laughs> how much time do we how have? Much, right? Exactly. Yeah. How much time do we have? So it always bothered me that managers at CI would talk about the individual as the unit of analysis. Oh, you know, we don't have enough individuals with 10 years or more expertise mm. or something like that. They would say this a lot after the big hiring that occurred after 9-11. Mm. And I would say the individual is not the effective unit of analysis. It's the team. And we have to be able to design a team that has the right blend of cognitive talent and expertise and experience to solve the problem that we're trying to solve. And we have, we had then, and I don't really think we have now, either in private industry or in government, we don't really understand yet how to bring a team of cognitive talent together to solve a particular problem. The reason why we need collaboration and we need to work as teams is that we have cognitive biases. We have cognitive strengths and weaknesses. There's been endless number of studies that have shown that when there are differences of opinion in a team and they're handled well, they're productive differences of opinion. I was going to ask if conflict can be incredibly <laughs> positive. Yes, to yes. Of, the yeah, outcomes yeah. are much better. Yeah. And what, what, why are the outcomes of a team better when there are differences of opinion, well, it raises everybody's game. That's one big reason because even and, – and the key thing about the studies is that differences of opinion in teams leads to better outcomes even when the dissenters are wrong. So mm -hmm. dissenters don't have to be right, but by presenting their perspective, it sharpens – the arguments and the work of the of the people who do have the right perspective. Now, conflict, of course, is a big issue. And you've hit upon a topic that, you know, I'm very passionate about. Uh, one of the reasons we don't do well in collaboration is that managers, again, private industry, government, are not equipped to handle what is what, what can be called diversity tension. Mm -hmm. I don't mean diversity tension in terms of black and white, right. although that, you know, that exists as well. But I mean, when there's a diversity of views, a lot of people don't know how to argue constructively or they're, they'll personalize the, the debate. Right. The manager doesn't really have tools in his or her arsenal to make to handle the diversity of tensions <laughs> in a productive way. And um, so that's another step that we have to take to really get to a place where we have cognitive collaboration. Well, I've always I, I always get worried and tend to feel that everyone agrees immediately about something that oh. there's that we're really we're, we need to take a step back and challenge assumptions because we're probably missing something. Oh, if yes, something's exactly. that clean and perfect, oh, absolutely. then boy, are we missing the, I, well, the thing that's going to kill gonna, us I'm going to quote John McLaughlin yeah. again because he's the one that I had this conversation with. And I believe he's the one who said this. We were talking about dissent and disagreement. And he, in that very thoughtful way, he said, noted that he wasn't even sure that we, when we disagree, that we even know if we really have a disagreement. In other words, our 
ability to unpack our arguments and share with each other what we're really thinking is so flawed that sometimes we think we're disagreeing, yeah. but we really don't. You know, if we could just figure out a way to get back to the basics, right. we would realize that it's maybe I have a particular piece of information that you don't have or I, the other person has a set of expertise that I don't have. And we just don't handle it well. So it seems like we all might be able to agree on a good idea, but it's a mediocre good idea. And it's, it's you know, anytime you have an innovative or a great or a novel idea, you're going to have people that aren't going to like it. So maybe you need conflict to get to a great idea, even if it pisses some people well, off. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the lessons, uh, best practice that we share in the book Rebels at Work is that oftentimes you are trying to avoid conflict. It's, it's very classic in a, in a passive-aggressive bureaucracy. Actually, that's redundant. All bureaucracies are <laughs> passive-aggressive. But it's classic in those bureaucracies to organize a meeting to avoid conflict. Yeah. Like, like the bureaucrats will get together and go, well, we're, let's make sure she's not there and let's make sure he doesn't bring up that point because we don't want there to be conflict. And I'm like thinking, this is nutty. This is exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah. You should organize a meeting so that all the points of view are surfaced. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let me ask you about your time as DDI. I'm wondering, because I've talked to people both of the pre-9-11 world who've done analysis work and the post-9-11 world. So I'm, I'm wondering, was there or is there still a tug of war happening between the need to do traditional analysis, kind of how the world works, and doing targeting or counterterrorism analysis? I mean, that that is it getting better now that we're kind of moving away from it? But I mean, post 9-11, that's basically what everybody was doing. Right. At that point. I was in the DI front office exactly at that time that the issue came to a head. So I was there from, uh, I was there 2005 and 2006. And analysts that had been hired by the Directorate of Intelligence were doing in CTC work that was targeting. Mm -hmm. So they would be trying to figure out where persons of interest or high value targets were. By doing that, they you know might do a lot of network analysis or, or other kinds of interesting, almost forensic work. By doing that, they weren't doing the classic traditional analysis of writing a paper. And they were getting penalized for that. And I and, and my colleagues in the leadership team thought that was nuts. I had long been troubled by the connection of writing to good analytic outcomes. I, I used to like to say, 
if you investigate and, you know, for example, at promotion time, people would say, well, you know, Shirley hasn't written a 10 page paper this year. Well, the fact that it had to do with the number of pages drove me nuts. <laughs> and, I, and I used to like to say, like, if you're assigned a research topic like um, is the United States, is, is there going to be another civil war in the United States? Not that something the CIA would do, but right. I'm just picking a topic to avoid mentioning any yes, other country. Yes, anything the CIA might actually do. Yeah, yeah. anything the CIA yeah. might. But let's say that we were asked, will country X have a civil war? And if you, you do the analysis and the answer is no, hardly a chance, why couldn't you just produce that analytic judgment in one paragraph? Right. If it's not controversial, yeah. if it's self-evident – why would you have to write a 10-page paper? It's absurd. Right. So, yes, we were in this uh, period, and I think there's been a lot of progress. And I think people and, – and part of and part of the concern is understandable. So if you have – to speak of government ranks, if you have a GS-10 targeting analyst and then you have a GS-15 targeting analyst, you need to talk about – what they do differently that justifies the difference in in grade and compensation. And because targeting analysts had just begun, people didn't really understand, you know, how do you develop subject matter expertise on right. targeting? How do you go from apprentice to mastery? Right. And I think they've made a lot of progress in thinking about that. But the point was... It didn't it, – uh, under no condition did it need to involve writing a 10-page paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned, you know, 2005, 2006. I feel really inside baseball right <laughs> no, now. No, we, I, we, I want we you to know. Wonky. That's okay. exactly oh, what we okay. want to do. Well. Um, no, one, no one comes to this podcast for light. They want to get wonky. Um, you, 2005, 2006 means you came in after some of the more – let's use the word notorious intelligence analysis mm. failures – for CIA, was there a mandate to effect change? Was a mandate? Absolutely. And again, I'm, of course, I'm talking about both 9-11 and Iraqi right, WMD. Right, right, absolutely. And um, there was uh, uh, a real effort to think about how we did analysis and professionalize it, frankly. Uh, the new analyst course that I spoke about at the beginning was something that was born before I uh, was part of the DI leadership team, but definitely it was something that was a result of all of the the, the intelligence mm -hmm. failures. A lot of what we talked about got misunderstood or misinterpreted. So, for example, I, I was a big one, a phrase I've already used for we have to unpack our analysis. We have to essentially be able to show our work, right. right? And so there was a lot of emphasis on structured analytic techniques, yes. which I cannot think of a more wonkier phrase than that. Although and, the acronym is SANTA, so that's not... Oh, yeah, yeah. oh okay. So it, they try to make yeah, it a little okay, more... Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> but the, uh, it, it would drive me crazy because, of course, people just got obsessed with structured analytic yeah. techniques. And I would like to say... You know, one of my favorite analytic techniques is to take a walk outside with one of my favorite 
sparring partners, colleagues to just air out my ideas. That is a analytic technique that that we should treasure. So it seems like quote unquote best practices is asking for a static stale organization that doesn't think creatively. Right, right, right. Well, I think one of the big problems, if I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that even though they had these massive intelligence failures, you couldn't just go in and fire everybody and replace them because that, that wouldn't make a difference because these are these were brilliant analysts yes. beforehand, right? So the people that made the now we know bad Iraqi WMD call and the people who led up to 9-11, these were not stupid people. These were brilliant analysts and it's not like bringing in smarter people was the solution. Well, and, and it's... It's difficult because at least in some of the instances where we've been accused of having intelligence failures, not all, but in some, the analyst executed the analytic protocol as it was then understood the best practice completely correctly. And you can't fault an individual who is following the script sincerely and doing it as best as they possibly can for, you know, getting it wrong. Getting it wrong is something that we all do. And, and there's a, and and it's like uh, high diving. It's not just the, uh, the fact that you executed the dive correctly, it's also the degree of difficulty right. of the dive. So you can talk a lot about, well, 90% of our calls are correct, but probably most of those are in the easy to moderate category. What really matters and what really the reason why we have intelligence agencies is for the very difficult calls. And so we have to different difficult scenarios we have to work very hard to get those right but we cannot delude ourselves we i don't i don't i have no idea what what a, uh, an okay operating percentage is for those right. but you know it's probably in the neighborhood of a you know batting average in baseball you're getting these really difficult calls are you getting one out of 3 right I bet there are people in your audience who think, heck no, it should be much higher right. than that. But I mean, and I don't even know what it is. I, I don't know that we know that. Right. I, this might be asking for self-reflection that maybe you haven't had time to do yet. But looking back, were you able to pull off the change that you tried to you wanted to do when you became DDI? No, no, I did not. And uh, I, I, I stay in contact with people. And I, uh, I had someone say to me just a couple of months ago, she said, I had not worked for you. Oh, I wasn't at the agency when you were, I wasn't hired. I never worked for you, but I, I've heard about you and what you tried to do. And I was like, that made me, you know, puff up my chest. (laughs) That made me feel good. Um, but I, I think that. I, I think that what I and other people in the Rebel Alliance were trying to do was in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I think that that work continues. And I think even in the healthiest of organizations, that kind of change was going to take a long time. Right. 
Well, so. I mean, it, you know, look at the tradition of the agency. You really are only getting rid of getting rid of the wrong word. You're starting to have the OSS generation retiring in the 80s from you right. know, Doe Casey and others. Right, right. So it's really the generational turnover hadn't happened all that yes. long ago. Yeah, that's right. Let me ask you about something that we don't get a lot of chance to talk about here on SpyCast, um, and that's telling truth to power. Mm. Uh, and I'm, we're not going to make this administrative specific, um, but I want to ask a little bit of kind of a wonky question. How much does the who the customer is matter when you're putting together a kind of finished intelligence? Yeah. It matters a lot. And I, I will say first, I, I do not like the phrase truth to power. I think that that's a, one of the big misperceptions that's out there because we don't own truth. Mm-hmm. We, we just, you know, we fail sometimes to uncover truth, probably often to uncover truth. And even when we have truth, the phrase implies we speak truth to power and power stops. And we don't have that power. Or at, listens at or all. Or listens right, yeah. at all. We don't have that power at all. You know, our, it is completely okay and well within the way our government is supposed to function for a policymaker to hear an intelligence analyst and decide, I don't agree, or... Yeah, I, I I get that what I'm trying to do has a low probability, but you know what? It's worth trying to do, and I'm going to go for mm-hmm. it. Those are things that a policymaker that are totally appropriate for a policymaker to say. Mm-hmm. Our job as an intelligence analyst is to present our analysis as persuasively and effectively as we possibly can. I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with a Henry Kissinger anecdote that something happened when he was in uh, working under Reagan. I'm sorry, it was Nixon. And some intelligence person said, oh, we warned you. And Henry Kissinger said, I don't remember feeling warned. And unless <laughs> I feel warned, right. you did not warn me effectively. Well, I think that's a valid critique. So you have to and I'm sure this is a challenge with this administration, but it's a challenge with every administration, you have to take into account the cognitive disposition of the person that you are briefing or that you are writing for and present, shade Mm -hmm. the truth in such a way that they are more likely to hear it, to receive it, to understand it. This is that gray area that often gets labeled politicization. Right. And, um, and I'm sure that it has – the effort to shape analysis so that the policymaker hears it crosses a line sometimes into a darker shade of gray right. that could be called politicization. But the answer – is not to naively think, oh, all I have to do is just present the facts and the heavens will open up (laughs) and everything will uh, be right from that moment on. And then you have this other puzzling situation that the CIA works for the executive branch and a policymaker may choose to take a course of action that the analysts think is unwise Nevertheless, the analysts are, and 
how I interpret being an intelligence professional, are obligated to do the very best they can to support that path. If they can't, then they need to follow, like if it's a, a legal issue, then they need to follow a, a whistleblower right. protocol. To get a little more, even more inside baseball in this case, a lot of policymakers, especially the ones that you really want to work with, are sending questions back. Mm-hmm. You know, more clarification or what about this or what about that? How much does that help you kind of cater to that policymaker? Are you almost doing a mini leadership analysis of your own people? Oh, sure. I mean, except that we're not supposed to be doing that. Right, so, yes, that, yeah, we could never call it that. <laughs> but if you're uh, a good analyst, all those questions that the policymaker is asking you, you're asking yourself questions like, well, I wonder why he's asking mm-hmm. that question. Or I wonder what the real agenda is behind her uh, inquiry on this point. And over time, you'll go, okay, this is the fifth time that this policymaker has asked me the exact same question. So. He or she is looking for a particular answer, right. <laughs> and uh, I can't give it to him yeah. yet, right? So it's it's yeah, that's what smart analysts do. Smart yeah. analysts understand and maintain really good relations with their policymaking counterparts, so that they really can anticipate the kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a good intelligence briefing. A good intel, you know. So a formula that I like to use a lot is what's an intelligence analyst's job? And people will say, well, to, you know, speak truth to power or whatever and tell the policymaker what they know. And they go, no, the, pol- the analyst's job is to figure out what the policymaker needs to know and deliver it to that policymaker in a way that they receive it. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about lessons learned, right? kind of thinking back about how we can use, you know, in the military, we talk about after action reports, kind of analyzing the battle and figure out yeah. why we won or why we lost. How important is understanding history to help us make decisions in the present and the future? Let me, there's kind of a follow up to that. And that can it be dangerous to assume that past lessons will naturally apply to the present and to the future? Uh, Well, yes and yes. Yes, (laughs) it's important to do lessons learned. The military has a very good culture around lessons learned, as best as I can tell. And when General Hayden became director, he really wanted to bring that culture to the CIA. Uh, I don't think I served him very well. I I did a a particularly good job of doing it. I certainly don't feel that... um, I, I navigated this sort of organizational cultural issue very well. Um, at CIA, of course, a lot of the lessons that need to be learned are compartmented. Right. And so you'd go, well, you know, X happened in the field. X happened in Afghanistan. Didn't the people in Iraq know X had happened? Wouldn't they have shouldn't they have acted differently because of that? And the answer would be no, they had no idea X had happened mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. So you have that kind of counterproductive approach to learning lessons. And that, that got in the way of it. And of course, 
and I'm not sure. I mean, I, I guess because the military had been doing it for a long time, they had overcome these issues. But there are, you know, all these implications of lessons learned programs like, you know, your budget right. or your next promotion. And, and that was always a problem. But then, the you know, the other part of it you ask, which is, can you overlearn lessons? And the answer is yes, you can overlearn lessons. You said earlier, which I thought was a good comment, I'm going to steal it, that best practices just leads to stable mm-hmm. organizations, which means that they will become less effective over time because the world around them is, is, is uh, changing. Right. And I think that's the issue with lessons learned um, and, and being too... Uh, Slavish, slavish about how do you say that? I know it's like seconded and seconded. Yeah, yeah, but it, you know <laughs> you can't be too slavish about that. The world is changing so rapidly. I know that's a cliche, but man, is it true? Like, for example, what's happened in the last couple of years with Russia and 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 you know cyber influence and all this stuff. There are no lessons that apply to right. this, really. Let me let me ask you. If there's a philosophical problem. I, I, let me use a fancy paradigm shift. Necessary. Oh. Um, historians love arguing about the agencies of change. Like, what is forcing it? Is it the kind of the great men of history? Oh yes. Or is it kind of actually systems, political, economic, right. societal yes. systems? And is that is there a debate like that going on at CIA? I mean, it, it's... Yes, you know, it, right. There is a debate like that. So there were... And, and you know, you would have to... You would have to say, I think, and I don't think it's unfair to say that the whole human enterprise is based on the assumption that it's men, because mm-hmm. it's mostly men, yeah. occasionally women, that are like in smoke-filled rooms, yeah. <laughs> pulling strings, making stuff happen, so that if we just got the right spy in the right place who could tell us what happened at that meeting, we would know everything we would need to know. That's, that's what, you know, so I think human is largely based on that theory. Uh, human operations are not really going to tell you that two billion people are going to be on the internet and they're going to tell stories to each other and they're going to influence the way people all over the world think and elites will no longer have control over that. You're not going to get that from human. So there tended to be, uh, and it tended to be generational, this divide between people who thought it's all about the individual person actor and others who thought that there were these great issues at play, democratization, globalization, the internet, that was going to overwhelm some of the power structures run by individuals. Right. We've already talked about how you know the internet's been a game changer. I'm going to ask you a little bit about digital age, but specific stuff, so we don't have okay. to. We talked for five hours about the other thing. How how has the digital age transformed the way open source intelligence is done? Oh, no, that that is just so huge. It's it's completely. It, it should completely transform the way open source intelligence works because when I started. Open source intelligence was the compilation of newspaper stories, 
and radio, foreign broadcast information service. So there was actually an advantage in someone creating text of radio broadcasts because that allowed you to analyze them a lot better. And translation, that's what open source was. And, you know, there was a, a occasionally an effort to uncover what's called kind of gray literature, like all that, like, you know, the annual reports of companies, yeah. all this stuff that's published is available, but is back in the 80s was difficult to collect. And uh, so it was just kind of narrative. It was just anecdotes. Now we're in this place where... People can suck up huge amounts of data, although Facebook and Twitter don't really like it when the government is doing it. They apparently can do it, but not the government. And understand society at a level of granularity that we've never understood before. And here's an issue where the U.S. is at a huge comparative disadvantage because we have the world's most open society. Russia, China, anyone, if they devote effort and suck up all the content, they can figure out all sorts of amazing things about the U.S. Mm -hmm. and all sorts of non-obvious correlations. The U.S., we can't do the same back. I mean, there is no other society in the world that has the kind of information penetration and transparency that the U.S. So we can't apply those techniques to China or to Russia yeah, or to most countries. Vladimir Putin's not tweeting when he wakes up in the morning. <laughs> no. It's, it's in most internal thoughts. <laughs> Isn't and, that interesting yeah. <laughs> that he does not tweet? Wow. <laughs> Let me, what a remarkable thing. You talk about openness and transparency. I'm going to kind of tweak that a little bit. I, I'm wondering how the modern public image of CIA has changed the dynamic of the agency. I'm thinking of the Twitter feed that CIA oh. has now. Also, like working with Hollywood, one of our our, uh, our board members is Tony Mendez, an oh, Argo sure. kind yeah. of change right, thing. Right. Of course, working with like Zero Dark Thirty and yeah, other yeah. things like that. I'm not going to ask you about spy cop, pop culture because I've seen your response to that. Let's not. Uh, it's <laughs> a, you, you like it as much as I do, which is not yeah, very much. Yeah. But looking at that, I mean, look at you talked about Michael Hayden, who also is a member of our board, but. The former DCIA is writing memoirs yes. now and, yeah. and, and hosting podcasts like Mike Morrell. Right. This is wonderful for those of us who want to know a whole lot more about it. But how yeah. have you seen it kind of change the, the perception of the agency? Yeah. Yeah. So first got to tell you a quick story. Yeah. Um, I joined Twitter, I think, in 2000, April of 2008, so I, very early on, which explains my weird user ID because <laughs> I was trying to be totally obscure. And at the time, as soon as I began to understand its potential, I remember telling, saying, 2009, the CIA needs to be on Twitter. I go, just think about how we could engage with the public. And I was telling the office of the historian that we could, like, share things and, on Twitter. And I was told that their reaction was, I can't believe that she thinks PhDs should be on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> And oh god! So, uh, so what's the question again? Just a broad so sense I, about. So, you know. I mean, I think it's good. I think it's important for. I think the agency overprotected historically what it could reveal to people, and I think that um, crowdsourcing 
our mission by at least being more open and informing people of what we do and how we do it is a really uh, productive thing to do. It will make us better. It will, you know, people will critique what we do or offer us ideas or suggestions. Intelligently. And I think that... And yes. Because, you know, we're, know we're fighting against the pop cultural oh, misrepresentation yes. right, of right. the agencies every day. I mean, we, yes. we live that here at the museum. Well, you know, I'll do a, put in a plug. I'm serving right now on a National Academies of Science panel, the Cato survey on advances in social and behavioral sciences and their application to national security. And we uh, have made calls for open papers and we want people to give us their ideas about what's out there in the research world that the intelligence community needs to know about. And to get better quality of ideas from the general public or even from academics, the CIA and the intelligence community generally need to be more open about what they do mm-hmm. so that, you know, people know where to plug in their, their ideas. And so I, I think the, you know, I think when you make everything secret, eventually nothing is really yeah. secret. I think that we would actually be more effective if we concentrated our secrecy on those areas where we really needed to have secrecy and opened up everything else. I, I frankly... You know, I could attach a number, but I'll say 70% of what intelligence analysts do could probably be done at the unclassified but sensitive level. Let me ask you one final question. We have a lot of listeners who are in the Intel NatSec community, but plenty that aren't. I know this is a broad question. We could probably speak for hours about this, but how have your experiences at CIA applied to your post-agency civilian career? First, having a vocabulary around thinking, critical thinking, and being able to talk to people about that has been very powerful. It's a a powerful comparative advantage out in the private sector. So I am asked to talk about critical thinking or, um, you know, uh, thinking about the future, those kinds of topics. And the skill set that I developed at CIA is actually a skill set that a lot of private industry needs more of. And so that's that's been very powerful, something that you can really build on, even when you're not in the intelligence community. Um, and I think the other thing that I, I learned a lot about was how to communicate effectively, how to present complicated ideas to important people in short periods of time and yet retain some kind of fidelity Mm -hmm. about the essence of that idea. I think that's also a very important skill and one that an intelligence community career really helps you develop. Is there a resource for those out there, perhaps in book form with your name on it, that people could go to to learn a little bit about how your CIA experiences can apply? To- well, I mean, I have the, the book Rebels at Work, a handbook. Was that, was that any uh, much of an alley yes, for you as possible? a handbook for leading change from within. It was co-written with Lois Kelly, where we talk about a lot of uh, 
the lessons I learned about being an effective change agent in an organization. I will also say that uh, I, I I don't active I don't write as often as I should, but I have a my own blog, recoveringfed.com. And certainly if you go in the first archive in the archives, the first two or three years, I was sharing a lot of lessons I had learned about thinking more effectively or leading more effectively. And that's also available. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. I truly appreciate it. It's a fun conversation. So. Yeah, I really uh, enjoyed it too. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. And click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.